This program was first broadcast on Canterbury's access media station, Plains FM, and was made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. Well, no mai toti mai to Mahika Kai Narratives, a program that brings researchers, policymakers, and those elbow deep in their practice together to discuss all areas related to, impacting on, and providing services to Mahikakai. Welcome to Mahikakai Narratives with Dion Payne. My guest today is Jolene Grace, no Waikato, Maniapoto Ngati Fatua, Teopori, Taranaki Ngati Tufareto, Metiati Hainui A Paparangi. Jolene lives in Takanu, which is a couple of minutes out of Tirangi on the south end of Lake Taupo. Kia ora. Kia ora. So where are you at the moment? At the moment I'm sitting in um, Jury, Ramarama area, South Auckland. Oh, okay. I'm at my son's home and in the background you can hear my great-grandson having a bit of a tangy. <laughs> oh, so thank you for speaking with me today. So I can count on a number of instances where there was something going on when it comes to mahikai. In Otara, there was a garden in the backyard and a line of fruit trees, including my favourite, Fijoa. In Te Kōpuru, there was a large marakai at the front of the buildings at Ardmore, a huge mara in the back, but it seemed everything we did involved food, getting food, giving food, catching, growing, picking. I'm really interested to know where did it all start or how far back can you remember these activities taking place amongst the whanau? Well, I guess I'd have to go back to um, my childhood, my first memories of um, being in this wilderness in a place called Pukemero Junction. Um, that's where my parents lived at the time I was born. Um, and we were very much a communal whanau. My dad was a coal miner, um, but families moved in community, catching the mines together. And um, so there was always kai growing outside. They, there was such thing as shops, is the easiest way to put that. So if you wanted vegetables, you grew them. If you wanted fruit, you grew them. So my mother always had jams, homemade preserves. Um, and we lived off what was in the creeks, like watercress, um, puha, eels was our staple. Um, having chicken, you know, roast chicken dinners in it, that was maybe once or twice a year, Christmas and special occasions. So um, we were very much um, families that, that lived off what was there. You did, there was no shop you went to to buy kai, to say, then we moved into Rotowaro where there was a shop and a butcher shop. But I still remember meat being very, not the most important part of our meals. It was still very much the things that they got. Like, um, I didn't like um, venison, but whenever Dad did go deer hunting and he read us a weaver with his brother-in-law, there was always um, venison in the, in the fridge or um they had like um, safe safe for keeping clay. If there was no fridge or freezer to be used, that, that smell of old meat was always hanging around in the air. <laughs> my grandmother and all my nannies lived in Nukaria in Tanifa. So they didn't have fridges. They used um, their own safes or way of preserving. 
they were preserving kaiwa, so she would um, render down the hanu off any meat and then fry hard the meat to seal thing in, the juices in, and then preserve it in that same hanu when it went hard in these jars. They were like clay pots. And so there's, that, that was her fridge. And she preserved her kai like paka paka, we call it, like that up until she died. Her house always smelled of that kind of food. So that was so your grandmother? She had a freezer. She still preferred to keep her kai like that. My grandmother, my Waikato grandmother. Okay. And um, so even out at Okarea, their kai came out of the creeks, the watercress, the eels, and um, you know, they have they grow their own corn and, and um, put the bags of corn into the creek until it was ready and then they would it would become rotten corn or kahapiro. And now that was part of the staple diet. Um, and so that was the porridge. But it was also the other kai that was eaten with um, meat even. Um, there was other kai at different times of the year, like the coca, the the centa, the um, the fruit inside the um, cabbage tree. Yeah. Uh, you know, they, I don't know exactly when those were ripe. It would seem like any time my father went past one of those damn trees, he'd scuffle <laughs> up it like a monkey and grab the middle out. And when we got home, we'd have all the stuff in, in the car that he'd picked up along the way. He'd jump into a creek if he could kneel in there. If he spotted a puha on the side of the road, he was out. So knives were always in the car. <laughs> And um, more often than not, he'd have some sort of taro on underneath, take off his trousers and then he goes. We'd hide sometimes because we'd be so embarrassed. <laughs> but um, he, we saw that kind of kai gathering all our lives and we were part of that. So, you know, when it came to getting the eels out, our job was to, if they were big eels, chase them down the creek towards them and he hooked them out with his um, tire irons. One of us would be up on the bank to lock them on the head, knock them out and throw them in the bag so they won't um, wriggle back in the creeks again. And part of the tikanga of gathering kai was always to share it. So most of that kai didn't make it home. So it was a matter of then dropping off kai. So he'd drop off to every auntie, uncle, cousin, whatever along the way. If he saw the pohatu, oh, my goodness, We'd have to have big bags because he would just go mad on that stuff. So can you describe what that was? So, uh, oh, sorry to interrupt, but when you said the pohatu, um, it's, it's not something I'm familiar pohatu. with. Yeah. Pohatu is, um, Pākehā's call it mollian, and, and it was grown. I, uh, when, <clears throat> when I first started my garden on our first home, which was that home in Collet Road, North Park, um, I said to Dad, I want to I want to grow some pōhatu, Dad. And he, and he says, well, you go and buy a seed from the shop and you ask them for chow mollian. I said, right. So I gave these stomachy to the, um, the guy that was, had, had a haberdashery and I said to him, can I have some chow mollian seeds, please? And he looks at me because I would have been all of about 16, 17, and he says, um, chow mollian seeds, now you have to, have you got a farm around here? And I said, no, I've got a garden in my backyard. And he says, well, no, cows eat chow mole and you need, a, you need acres for these seeds. And I said, no, we eat chow mole and it's pohatu. And he said, oh, my goodness, only cows and Maoris eat that stuff then. 
So I was so angry. Not to disrespect my dad. I said, the guy said that only cows eat the stuff that means he doesn't know what he's talking about. Yes. Mother-in-law even grew or had to. I can't remember. As children, did we have to eat that? I can't. I just don't recall it. Yeah, yeah. It, it would have been. It would have been bitter, like kale. Uh, kale is bitter, right? Mm-hmm. It's a bit like turning toffee, slightly bitter, but I liked it. It had a nice, soft leaf, softer leaf than the um, tuna top. Okay. Poor hard to. Well, but I can see why cows liked it, because we <laughs> liked it. <laughs> hey, I want to come back to the eels, um, how you had mentioned that that was quite a staple, um, let's call it a protein, a staple protein for the whanau. I remember in the backyard mm. always seeing eels hanging from the clothesline not not for a day not even for a week I would probably say a while longer than that um talk to me or tell us your process yeah tell tell me your process around your preparation of this dried type okay so depending on the eel depending on the eel some eels would be very fleshy so you know the eels be caught up in the in the kaipara um, just past the corporate then, they were beautiful and they were fleshy, white fleshy, really beautifully beautiful eels. And so they were actually really nice um, from one day, two days of, of drying. But I used to like drying those ones for at least two to three weeks because they were even crispier than the eels we had in, in Waikato. Our eels down in Waikato were a little bit leaner than that. When I say leaner, they didn't have the same white flesh to it. It was a, more the really darker flesh. But we hung our eels to dry depending on our taste. And I, I love mine dry. And then they've got to be cooked only in hinu, not oil. It's got to be fat, you know, like beef fat dripping or, or um, pork dripping, doesn't matter. It enhances the flavour of the of the eel and it makes it crispy. Um, you're going to go through, you know, the, the flies will get on it, then the maggots will come and put them off and then they're gone and then they can't get in the flesh anymore. So you end up with nice dried eel. Mm. Just flip them off. Okay. Um, I could leave mine out for a month even. Yes, I want it very dry. Yes. So when you've had it on the line for about a month drying, it would never be in wet weather. It would always be in dry weather. Um, and it would be nice and dry and crispy to fry. Um, but the flesh, of course, is a very dry flesh when it, when it's out that long. So depending on your own taste, really, and the eel. So when do you think we started? So, I mean, uh, there are two, two parts. So the first part is... Um, if there's a story that you used to tell us, it was that when you were a kid, you would smell your house before you got there. Why was that? Oh, that's when Dad was cooking his rotten corn, his kangapito. Oh, you know, I never did take to that taste. <laughs> I, I, may, I remember eating it, but never fondly, because it was all my grandmother had sometimes when we'd go visit or stay with him. So you, you, you know, it's an acquired taste. Get past the smell, it's not in your smell. For me, it was the taste. But he, my dad absolutely adored the stuff. Um, so did your brother. 
And for some reason, whenever you guys were sick, he'd make up some and bring it around as if it was his remedy. <laughs> was it? But, you know, the smell of that. Hmm? Do you think it was? Do you think there's something in, in Kangapiro that ha- has a bit of a rungwa around it? Well, apart from it being, um, you know, um, there's no there's no preservatives in it. I guess it would be. Okay, okay. I mean, they, they did that with um, potato too, and that's even more. Talk to me about the fermented potatoes. I'm interested in that. Oh no, no, that was just plain yuck. Um, we never did. Um, I never did eat that. The look of it, the spell was, was enough. But he absolutely loved that stuff. Um, I think he called it cordero. Um, I, I can't remember because I, yeah, I think it was cordero. But um, the stuff that I do remember him um, particularly looking after, because you know he had his own drums for keeping things in water, eh? Okay. So he would always have a drum outside our house. So there was always something stink outside anyway. <laughs> but um, he always, whenever he went to get kinners, they were never fat enough. So he'd have them sitting under the tree. And these things are near our back door. And you had to go past these things to get in our house. So whenever these things were there, I never brought my friends around. But he'd have his, you know, like that oatmeal porridge. Mm. It'd be, you know, straight out of the packet, go out and feed them, or we'd have to feed them, and they fatten up. That's how he fattened them. So, how did he fatten them? get them with porridge, oatmeal. He mixed the kinners with the oatmeal? No, you just get out of the packet. Yeah, you just get a little bit in your head, take it out of the pan, you take out and feed my kinners. I go out there and drop them, and these bloody things are eating them. (laughs) And that's how they fatten themselves. Wow, they didn't die. No. Okay. Wow. And he'd go out and he'd get his kid whenever he felt like it. And if it's not fat enough, he'd give him some more porridge to eat. Actually, That's I think, how he fattened his kind. Do you think that was just a, a puru whānau thing or do you think that was that you saw that everywhere with all of the whānau all the time? No, no. He was he was innovative, eh? <laughs> When he was looking after his kai, he was very particular about looking after his kai. And somewhere he had learned that if he fed his kinder and made them fatter, that he would be, you know, you don't need to shell them, you don't need to kill them straight away, keep them alive. So they were always in a damp sack. He probably watered them. I can't remember whether we watered the damn things, but he would feed them to make them fatter. And he'd have like half a sack there. Into the sack after, I don't know, about a week or so. But he would be fattening them right to the bitter end. I'm intrigued to try that. I'm I'm like, gosh, I really want to give that a, I really want to give that a go. Give it a go. It worked. I saw that most of my young life when we lived in East Tamaki because that's where you had a tour a lot. Um, When we got to... um, Otari Samaki, we were close to the oceans. So we was mm-hmm. always going out to Oriri. We got all our scallops from Iumatau. They had beautiful scallops there until it became all polluted. And we got all our mussels and some of our fish and that from out of Oriri, Oriri Point for the mussels. 
he'd go diving out there. So he taught us how to dive. So I'd go diving with him to, to get mussels. And then um, I'm, I can't remember him trying to feed the mussels. I, I'm not pretty sure whether he ever bothered to feed them because there was an abundance in order to points not that far from home at that time. That makes sense. We were surrounded by Kaimuana. There was no need, and we still are, there's no need for anybody to be um, pohara, can't, can't get their own kai. There's kai everywhere. When do you think the change happened where we kind of went from that innovative way of not just gathering our kai but preparing it and eating it to this idea of yeah, chicken and mince and sausages? Yes. We, went, we went over to fast foods, mm. chicken, sausages, those were the fast cook-ups, you know, and they were cheap. And you didn't, you know, it's, it still took you a bit, a little bit of um, petrol, but it took you a lot of time to go and get the coin. Whereas that stuff you go up the road, you buy from the supermarket. When do you think that was about, uh, what I mean by that is around about which decade do you think that really became uh, this fast food grocery? I mean, it's, it's interesting because when we say fast food now, we think drive through, but back then that fast food would have been the grocery shop. So what decade do you think that became more prominent than that. That was definitely in the um, that was definitely in the mid to late seventies. Okay. Um, and I say that in our particular whānau, it was definitely in the sixties and early seventies because that's when they all started working in the freezing works. Okay. And once they went into the freezing works, meat became our staple diet, and thousands of Waikato families moved to work in the freezing works. And so did a lot of Ngāpū from the north. So those freezing works, um, the main ones were Southdown, Westfield and Hallabies, they employed thousands of Māori workers. And so you had all these people supporting even their other extended whānau through those meat. Mm. So our complete diets changed from being um, able to just get and buy meat cheaply. Sure. So when you were kids, for example, in the in the early seventies, I would still take these out around his tamaki to help me get watercress, and I would get bags of watercress, you know, not not big bags, but like a clean sack size, a couple of those, and I would um, blanch them and put them into packs, kai size packs, into the freezer. So I always had those greens, kuha and watercress. I still remember doing that as an early teen, having to walk around Flatbush and Ormiston, let's be honest, that's Otara, um, and going to where the industrial areas were and picking um, watercress and puha. I mean, you wouldn't find a watercress patch mm. anywhere near that. I mean, it's all housing now. What I really, the creeks are gone. Yeah, all the creeks are gone. So they drain I, the creeks. I, I think the reason I was kind of going then down that track about when did that change is it's almost like a lot of that food that you were talking about, um, you know, your dad and your grandparents eating, it's almost a delicacy now rather than a norm. It's almost like, well, no, I, I, sh- I should preface that by saying I don't see it as, as often as maybe I'd seen mm. it as a, as a young child. Um, so it's, it was kind of getting the sense of when did our diets change? And, and that 70s area I think really is – Mm. Maybe greater urbanisation as well, moving out of the rural areas into the urban space. You know that. Yeah. yeah, when they left 
the land, um, they went into the cities. When the supermarkets opened up, when they got access to um, meat, meat became the staple of our diets. And bread, um, you know, shop bread became our staple diet, so bread and meat became the thing at every meal. Mm. I remember when meat, for example, like pork bones, um, what's his name, um, Wong, only came to Huntley on a Friday. And so you'd have hundreds, you know, literally hundreds of motors all queued up down by the railway track waiting for them to arrive so they could buy their pork bones or their backbone. But because we were Catholics and didn't eat meat on Friday back then, we had to have alki on a Saturday. Goodness. So, um, but, you know, that's, that's how, and how, how much, dependent we became. And how much were the pork bones back then? Well, it was cheap then. That's why they queued up for it. It was throwaway mm. meat. He got it as a throwaway. The butchers threw that meat away. Only Maoris bought it, what they used to say. <laughs> Only you Maoris buy this stuff. Well, it's interesting because if you go and get pork bones, at least down here in the supermarket, you're probably going to pay anywhere from seven ninety nine so to eight ninety nine. And that's why that, even when you were kids, um, I used to get a whole whole side of pork for about two ninety nine dollar ninety nine for a whole side of lamb. That's half a carcass. You can't even look at it under sixty. <laughs> that is true. Hey, can I come back to, um, you were mentioning your uh, marakai before, because I've always known you to have a marakai. Um, I, I mean, every house, there, there was always, even if it was a small one, there was a mara there. But what, what were the main foods that, uh, when you did have your mara, back, and I'm talking back when you were sort of back in the Waikato, you know, Rotawaro and others, and then as you started to move into the city, what were the main crops that you were planting? Uh, we always had kamokamo when it was in season. Um, that was always a, a main a kai for us. The potatoes, of course, um, and kumara. Okay. Those were the three main ones I remember. Tomatoes grew easily, but in terms of what went in the pot with our kai, it was kamokamo, pumpkin when it's in season, and, you know, they're all seasonal foods. But we never... There was never an occasion when there wasn't kai growing in the garden. Mm-hmm. These are the days of no shops, eh? Yes. And um, even when there was a shop, you know, a dairy or whatever they had back then, um, they didn't have the range of groceries. Um, I mean, vegetables you see now. A lot of our vegetables grow now are grown in hothouses. They didn't have those sort of things back then. Yeah. I, I'm coming back to that, um, you know, getting – kai for whānau, I kind of want to switch it to when that kai went to the marae. So I know that when we would have to, or when we were forced to peel sacks of spuds, um, it was never about Mm -hmm. the peeling of the spuds. It was really about being able to sit around and talk to your cousins or, you know, hear from your aunties and uncles. So although food was about eating, it was also about that ability to whakawhanaungatanga, I guess. I mean, is, what do you recall when you were growing up? What, what, what were some of the really cool experiences that you had just being with whānau getting kai? Look, you know, when you're, when you're around the back working in the kitchens and preparing kai and what have you, that's the fun area. That's where everybody jokes and, and tells stories and, and shares, um, you know, things that are happen in their lives and gossip about your best and mind yourself so you, there's no fooling around so 
people used to go to the front of a place reluctantly because all the fun was around the back. Yeah. So um, kids were taught to work at the back from an early age because that's what we did. That was our tea It was always about um, feeding and, and, and manaki our, our visitors, our manuhiri, our manuhiri. So um, you learn to serve at an early age, and that was part of Waikato's way of being. So, you know, some of these kai we've been talking about, you'll still see those, some of yes, those. Yes, that's true. Um, at Pokai, because kai was always about the eels. You go to um, these ones out here um, in public, back at Papakurui, theirs is all about the, the flounders and the seafood they get out here, and the manuka. And so the different marae had their own specialties, special kai. Um, Wenor Wenor was another kai, but again, that comes off the, the kamo kamo. And so, you know, you can't get lots of that, but you might see that turn up on the, a main table, you know, where the king is sitting and, and the komatua. So you'll get the specialty dishes that only they will get to be served with. So tell me more um, about Wenor Wenor. And, um, well, the Wenor Wenor is the flower of the kamo kamo. And um, when my when I had my first garden, my grandmother brought her seeds around and put them in, and one of my aunties put hers in. And for them, it was um, giving me my first mara, my first garden, and making sure I had a starter. But and um, my grandmother came round and started picking the flowers, and my humble plant um, fruit, and I said, you know, she's put those ones in. I've got to leave her alone. But true enough, um, they left enough so that um, some were fruit, but the winner winner was a special um, dish. It was never in abundance because you don't get that much to eat a lot, you know? Just like your board, it was just on the top of the meat pot. Wow. It was almost just blanched. I think the beautiful part of that story was how your your nannies came and did your staramara by putting a staramara <laughs> by um, by starting your mara uh, by putting those seeds in the ground. I mean, that's that's a really I want to say a very wonderful thing to do, but I think she it's also a beautiful thing. Instruction. You know, their thing was to always make sure that you could feed your yourselves, eh? Yeah. So they always had to make sure every home had kite. So, um, but when she came around, when my grandmother came around, Auntie Ruby had already been. <laughs> and Auntie Ruby had put some plants on. And she yeah. had made a mound. So you couldn't hide it. <laughs> she put her seeds in and she made a mound. So when my grandmother came and she saw the mound, she demanded to know who had done that <laughs> to my garden. So I had to tell her it was Auntie Ruby. Oh, she was so disgusted. She kicked at it. And then she got me to make a mound over here and put her ones in. <laughs> Auntie Ruby was a, was a daughter of Paki Paki. So, you know, Auntie, Auntie Ruby was doing her thing. She <laughs> loved my dad. She loved me. So she was giving me my first mother. And then Nanny came and saw that. She was disgusted because that was her role. She's supposed to be the one to give me her moko, my first mother. 
That is so that is so lovely. Hey, listen, before we go to a wire to break, one of the things I just wanted to come back to that you mentioned was really around um how the how the going into the kitchen was considered, you know, the place where you really served. Um it's an interesting thing you you mentioned because I think what we see a lot today is um for some is rushing to be on, on the pie. And um, and seeing that as as a place on the marae that is the may perhaps the sexiest place to be, but I think you're absolutely right. I think it is you know that ability that mana manaki actually sits in the kitchen. So it was it was really lovely to hear you say that because it's 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 seldom explained in that way that that was the place where you could do the most for the people that were coming through our doors. Well, for Waikato, and that was particularly um, um, true through Tapuya's era, eh? When yes. she trained children to serve properly. Because she, she always said that unless we were there to serve the people, we weren't doing what we were supposed to be doing, and that was upholding the mana of the Kingitaka. So when we have pokai and people manuhiri come to our pokai, if we didn't have enough clay to 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 give them, or if we weren't um, hospitable in the way we served our clay, our mana would be diminished because only you can diminish your own mana. So we would lose face through that. So we're going to take a waiata break now. Um, Kotine waiata, no bala kalolo, Macy Ricker, Magic Bioho, Walbruha, Seth Hapu, the witch doctor Rato Kotroi Kingi, Fakoroko Mai Fano, Ki Kamanu.
Well, tēnā hoki mai whānau. Before the break, we were talking with Jolene Grace about some of the intergenerational whānau practices from her upbringing in Waikato um, and her time in uh, Tamaki Maka. But um, just during our break there, she was going to tell us korero about her nanny noko. Kia ora. Yeah, um, I was remembering through the break um, when they brought nanny noko up to um, Otara to live with us because she wasn't allowed to farm her land and she wasn't allowed to grow the crops she wanted to. So anyway, um, and they lost a court case for that land there. So she moved into a flat, but, you know, she was used to being near the creek and having access to watercress and that. So she told my father to go and get an old drum that was like an old machine drum, you know, what they used to use for washing clothes in, collins, okay. and it had a hole. And, he, and she got him to go and get some watercress from down Okarea and bring the mud with it, you know, the, the mm. mud from the creek. They brought those up and he put it into this um, bowl thing and um, then she ran the, the water into it, full of water, up to the top of the leaves, past the stalks, and then she only allowed the tap to drip, a light drip. Up until she died, she always had watercress. She kept her watercress, grew her watercress. Out and she always had rows of um, puha grain. She had her watercress like that so she never was I just wanted to share that one because that was special oh, absolutely. well that's fantastic I mean it's it's a great way to bring uh you know that kai from another area into a place like Tamaki and still be able to have that same taste and feel of a, of a kai that um was back in you know back on the on the Turanga Waiwai so that's no, that's a lovely story thank you for sharing well, I never saw any other relative I never ever saw any other relative do that. Mm. I wonder if we could try that again. I mean, you know. <laughs> so it's funny that you could. So, I mean, she could have made us go and get watercress out of the creeks, you know, up around his stomach because there were still good creeks in those days. But no, she wanted her own mm. watercress from Okari. I think you've given me a couple of really good... Um, I don't know if it tasted any <laughs> But I think you've given me a couple of really good, um, you know, some really good ideas on how to, you know, cook some of this kai, you know, like you're talking about the the wino wino, uh, you know, the, um, I don't, I don't know about, I don't know about some other stuff you were talking about, the fermented potatoes, but anyway. But I, I just some of these stories, you know, I haven't heard before. So it's really, it's a, it's really awesome to hear them. I do though have a particular story that is um that I like to tell anyway, <laughs> from time to time. And this was your dad your dad's penchant for earling on the golf course. So, you know, um when yeah. not when normal people <laughs> When normal people would go on the golf course with their golf clubs, uh, with the aim to play a, a lovely round of golf, I, you know, your father, on the other hand, had a whole nother co-papa going on. Um, tell us about that. <laughs> oh, look. He particularly liked golf courses that had little waterways um, <laughs> because he always reckoned there was kai and the water, so um, to that one, Waitarimu was one, and I can't remember the other one was out of cookie, 
But at a particular hole, I don't know if it was the sixth or ninth hole, there'd be this dream or this little bit of a lake, and there'd be watercress in it. <laughs> and so your father went with him, and, you know, your dad didn't play golf, but he went out with him a couple of times, and he gets so embarrassed. <laughs> he said his father would stop. He'd pull down his trousers, <laughs> pull out his um, thing, and go and watercress. If he saw a nail, He'd get his flipping wire around his golf bag. <laughs> he always carried an eight wire around. He'd unravel it and straight it out. He'd be in there poking for the eel. <laughs> okay, so when and, he would get uh, this know, eel, it though. It was very embarrassing. But when hey? he would get this eel, obviously it would have to hang off what his golf bag as he was continuing his round. He was, he was always prepared, eh? So there was always a bag. <laughs> He'd have a plastic bag. He'd have a knife. And he'd have that damn wire. I mean, who who moves around with a wire, a knife, and a bag? Always have something to put his, his stuff in. You know, his watercress or even puha. If you spotted puha, he'd be cut. You know, not a golf course, you're not allowed to cut it anything. <laughs> but if he saw a puha growing, he'd be cutting that out of the golf course. Yeah, he was always doing that all his life. He saw Kai where Kai was. You know, the other day, I was shooting back from Taupo and there was a new cutting where they've been doing some roadworks. And so a new cutting when you've had rain and sunshine, it's always going to be puha. Did you know that? Anyway, I'm driving along and I spot a whole... People are so damn rude. It's supposed to be 30 k's, but they still went zooming past me at 50 k's while I'm cutting, cutting with the scissors, my puha. I must have filled a big bag in about five minutes. There was so much of that beautiful puha. It was all new growth because we'd had a lot of rain and a lot of sunshine. And, you know, of course, my granddaughter's hiding in the bag. <laughs> yes. I do recall being a granddaughter hiding in the back once upon a time. <laughs> <laughs> while one's grandparents were out there um, on the side of the road picking puha. But, uh, you know, I think th- this also, though, brings up a really good point, and that is that too often we're seeing the council or farmers spraying those areas that would ordinarily be a really good place to pick puha. And I think that sometimes it's, it's yeah, those misunderstandings that, that it's not necessarily about how do you get the prettiest side of the road, but it's also about why are you poisoning our kai, you know? So that, that lack of understanding, I think, can be very frustrating at times. When we first moved into Tahanu, because it's semi-rural, well, it is rural, and it's a tiny village, a lot of the houses are not occupied there's only a few that are occupied. The rest are holiday homes. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I walk along there and there's puha growing everywhere. And there was even a little watercress in the drain. So I'd be walking up and down that road with my knife. You know, after a few months, I noticed it was all gone. I thought, oh, you lousy so-and-sos. They didn't like me walking around with my knife. Put a complaint at them. They turned into a puha. Well, it, it could have looked a bit suspicious with some uh, lady walking around with a knife in, in the village. You know, yeah, I'm old. It's not as if I'm going to be cutting somebody's throat or something. <laughs> and I always had puha in my – and it's all gone. They they murdered every patch there was. It would be heavily sprayed to kill it. 
you think when I'm talking about, so, you know, one of the, the, main, the co-papa for this particular, um, this particular was also around intergenerational. So I can clearly see that from your great-grandparents, grandparents, your parents down to yourself. Um, I like to think that, you know, I, I do a bit of mahikakai. <laughs> but do you think how important is it to you that we continue to teach our kids and our mokos about, you know, the food that our, you know, our grandparents and great-grandparents used to eat? Is, is that even important anymore? Or do you think it's a new age the kids are just used to what the kids are used to, and that food is really something for another time. Do you think we should bring it forward? A lot of the, a lot of the illnesses we have now, research and medical special, specialists in the Ministry of Health will say is attributed to our processed foods. We didn't eat so much processed foods, and if we ate more of our natural kai, we would have less of what we suffer with now, like arthritis, diabetes, I reckon. I totally agree. So if nothing else, we should teach our children and our mokos to feed themselves so that they never have to beg for food, Mm. so that they never have to rely on government to feed them. If nothing else, we should teach our, our our children and grandchildren to always respect the environment that feeds them. Mm. So one of the things we were taught was never take more than you need. Always, always say thank you to our atua and to our tūpuna from whom we believe these things came from. Yeah. We wouldn't have it if it wasn't for them. Says we would thank the gods for our rumoa, we should also thank them for our kai. Mm. Well, that's well said, actually. I mean, I, I totally agree with you. Um, if there's one thing I've learnt doing mata down here, is not only is that great exercise, but it's it's amazing when you actually pull that food out and you start eating it. And I think if there's one thing I would take from my child, um, my childhood is that. Is, is, is exactly as you've said, that that need to be able to feed oneself. I think the thing I used to love about um, particularly living in Otara was there were so many fruit trees. You could not go hungry with all the fruit trees in the backyard. There was a mata there. Again, um, you know, with with Dad and the abattoirs, there was there was always kite. But the part I want to want yeah. to ask you about next is there's also this cup of tea, uh, tikanga. <laughs> And I, I always I always noticed that we were either put in the car to go and have a cup of tea or we were always prepared for people to turn up and have a cup of tea. And um, I'm really interested in, in where that started because it's now entrenched in our family. Uh, but it is one of those things where we were always taking kai or when people came over, they were bringing kai. When did that start, do you think, um, as, as a sort of a tikanga in, in the whanau? I kato e ngāti because I've been brought up firmly in both those iwi. Um, providing kai or cup of tea for visitors is very important. Mm. Um, an example is if you went to their home and they didn't offer you a cup of tea, you just been insulted deliberately. Mm. Not offer it 
means that um, they're not good enough. We didn't just do the cup of tea. For us, it was put the kai out. And for my nannies in the north, they, they would put on their best crockery whatever. For my nannies in Waikato, they didn't have the crockery, but they'd have the best mug and the best plates and the best kai they got. Sure. So in both both lots, both iwi, to not give off a kai to a visitor was a deliberate insult. You didn't like them. But usually you didn't even invite them in the house, so the insult starts from there. If you don't invite them in your door, they're not good enough. Mm. And if you invited them in and then you didn't offer a kai shirt, that's, a, that's even worse. It really is. That's really, you're on the borderline for a fight <laughs> when that happens. Did you ever see that happen? Yeah. yeah. It was deliberate for the fight. Mm. The kai is about um, whakanoi, making the and making things safe, safe. So if there's ever been a hara, any anything between you and that person, the kai neutralizes everything and makes them the both sides safe. Mm-hmm. So you would do that not just for your friends; you would do that for anybody. So. Has always been integral to peacemaking and for monarchy. Mm. It's and as I said earlier, to Puya always advocated for serving the the highest order is to serve people. That way we show we were upholding the mana of the Tangitanga by humbling ourselves. Fakiti, too important that you can't serve. Before we come to the end of our, okay. yeah, oh no, absolutely. Thank you for that. That's that was great. Before we come to the end of our interview, because I, I know we're just about running out of time, is there any any other little stories like that that you'd like to share that you can recall where, um, you know, the, the a particular type of practice that you remember in the Fano that you've not seen anywhere else. And I'm not saying that that's because the Fano was special, but rather it was you know a bit like feeding the kinners. Just it was just something you guys did. So um, when we went up north and we did, um, uh, you know, we're living at there, and we had a lot of um, a lot of them were street kids or naughty kids that had been um, disconnected from their marae whanau. Um Taught them how to grow kai, cook kai, and to go out and collect kai moana mm. and catch fish and shellfish and all of that, um, seeing their faces, and some of them we met years later, one of them in particular, thanked me for saving her life. She would have been dead in the gangs like her brother. But um, she said that learning how to feed themselves was very important. After they left us, they still had to look after themselves. Sure. So um, every class, they have a little garden outside its classroom, bring children from a very young age back into growing kai and how to eat kai. In terms of our shellfish and that, well, you know, there's so much pollution. Now it's hard to say where anything is mm-hmm. safe together. But um, we need to um, try to keep people less reliant on supermarket kai. Planting fruit trees, you don't see many um, homes now with fruit trees in the back. Mm-hmm. 
certainly don't see many with gardens, clay gardens. Just if I think about COVID this year, you know, in 2020, um, that was something we really fell back on was the fruit trees and uh, quickly getting our mara back up and going. Because I, I think you're absolutely right. It's We don't know if there'll be another lockdown in the future, whether there'll be another COVID, maybe not COVID-19, but another COVID. I think we were caught on the hop a little with this one. It just came out of the blue. So quickly it's, you know, how do we encourage our whanau to be prepared and to like go back into the mara and plant some trees and uh, again just be a little bit more self-sufficient um, because all those lines we saw going into the um, supermarkets over lockdown were, were just phenomenal I think. Mm. Yeah I think that um, from the 70s, 70s onward we moved completely away from um, feeding ourselves off the land to feed ourselves out of supermarkets. And I think we need to reverse that trend as much as we can. I mm. mean, it's not always possible. People live in apartments and high-rises these days, so you still need to find ways to um, be able to feed yourself if that other guy's not there. If that shop isn't there, how are you going to feed yourself? Sure. And what food should you be thinking of that you're going to get the most out of um, I would still go back to, um, you know, I love kale, but I, if I could go back to um, uh, just a nice kai, puha, but the mm. puha water is medicinal. Yes. So we can be, you know, they go on about green food juices and stuff in shops. We can go back to making our own by getting our own kai growing again and our own fruit trees. Oh, well, that's fantastic. Listen, um, listen, thank you so much for coming on the program. I know that um, things that I have a passion for and the things that I'm doing today is, is very much a reflection of what I've seen um, you and Dad do. And it's, I don't think I really realised just how much of what we saw and did is embedded to what I do and unfortunately forced my kids to do. <laughs> but I think the hope is, is that we continue that intergenerational mahikakai practice. And um, what I love is the stories you've said today. I am so keen to get some drums at the back at the back of my door and my back door and start growing some stuff um, to see if I can do some, I don't know, some puha, some feed some kinners and, um, you know, whatever else I can manage or maybe some kangapito. So um, thank you so much for coming on the show. I really do appreciate you. And I'm very grateful for all of the things that you taught me while I was growing up. So thank you very much. I've enjoyed it. It's lovely to be telling. Kakite. Kakite.